Let's take a moment and pray. Our great God and Father, we ask that you would open our ears, uh, our hearts and our minds to uh, receive your incorruptible word. Feed us, Father, by these words. Uh, help us to be authentic and real Christians, to actually believe what we profess. We pray that you'll do that for us by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. The uh, passage that we've been looking at the past few weeks has been uh, 1 Peter, and we're going to continue this morning, hopefully, to finish this chapter uh, in the next couple of days, or next couple of Sundays today, and uh, next Sunday we'll finish chapter 1, and then uh, move into the, 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 the body of the letter, the rest of the letter. A lot of what he's been writing is an introduction, it's just getting us a flavor of what he's trying to do and tell us about what it's like to live in a world which is uh, uh, at cross at, at crossways with uh, the world it, it's living in. Christianity was not uh, the accepted religion of the day. It's very hard for us here in the West, I think, as I've been telling you, to even get our head around what it must have been like to be in an extreme minority and to uh, endure this localized and regionalized persecution that they were undergoing. Uh, this was not the imperial persecution that occurred later under uh, the Roman Empire, specifically beginning with Nero and, and going through many of the earlier emperors, but rather local. It was, it was families that were being torn apart. It was communities that were struggling to figure out who these people were that were now uh, no longer uh, among them. It was dealing uh, in the Jewish community with a large conversion of Jewish uh, uh, citizens and people to the Christian faith. And of course, you can imagine what that must have been like in their families. And so Peter is addressing a mixed group, a group of Jews and Gentiles who are finding it very difficult to live the Christian life and to maintain their faith. And so I'm going to do my best uh, to try to bring it into our context here and in, in our day, and hopefully it will uh, be helpful to you. So if you have your scriptures, open them to First Peter. We're going to read uh, verses 13 uh, through chapter 2, verse 3. That's the next section I've chosen. We'll do that for a few weeks. So now hear uh, God's word. Uh, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was manifest in these last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, 
who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is grass, all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice, all deceit and hypocrisy, envy and slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. This is the word of the Lord. There's a, a saying, and all of you I think have heard it probably, it goes like this, I don't dance, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, and I don't go out with girls that do. Uh, this is an old saying to express uh, uh, what was thought to be earlier in our century and last century and how knows how far back it goes of what a Christian's really like. These are the things I don't do and therefore these are the things that define me. But a very, just a cursory reading of the New Testament and I would argue if you carefully read the Old Testament you will find that that is not at all what defines the people of God. It is not by what they don't do. It's not even by what they do. Rather, the thing that defines the people of God, that defines every one of you in this room that is a believer in Jesus Christ, the singular thing that defines you is who you are. Who are you? Are you a new creature in Christ? Have you indeed, as Peter has said twice now in just these opening verses, are you truly born again? Has there been a new birth in your life? Is new life uh, uh, springing up like a fountain from the inside of your very being? Do you have a new spiritual DNA? Yes, your physical DNA is the same, and you're going to struggle with a lot of the things that are just inherent to who we are as human beings. Both those things we're born with and both those things that we learn. But who are you really down in your core, down in the center of your being? And every parent here wants their, their, their children to cross that threshold from, from old the old life into the new life. We call it conversion, being born again, being born from above, whatever, uh, you, whatever you want to use. But this new life is what defines us. If you are a Christian or you were raised in a tradition where what you do defines who you are, the rules, the regulations, the behaviors, the things that you think are, are Christian, whatever you think they are, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go out with girls that do. If you think that that's what defines you as a Christian, you're probably uh, marginalizing your faith, marginalizing your Christianity. And it's even possible, and I want to say this carefully, you're not a Christian at all. If that's the tradition you were brought up in, 
that what you do defines who you are, then you really need to listen to today's message because you may not be a Christian. You say, are you? How dare you? I'm the pastor. I get to do whatever I want. No, uh, look. Listen to me seriously. Every one of us has to examine. Paul said, examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. And so a certain amount of self-examination and self-scrutiny needs to go into every one of your lives, especially you adults. And you young people, listen to me, you're struggling with a whole different set of things than us old folks struggle with. And so I understand how difficult it is. Am I really a Christian? Listen to what I'm going to say today. Listen to what the Apostle Peter is saying. And I think it will help you, even if you're a young person and you're trying to figure it out, or if you're an older person, you say, you know, my life just doesn't feel right. Put, your, put yourself up against what Peter is saying and measure and see where you're at. It'll help you. We're going to talk about three things this morning, and then next week I'll try to cap it off with, with the, the last few verses of this passage we read. We're going to look at hope. We've already talked about it a little bit. We're going to talk about it more today. Holiness. What is holiness? And finally, the high cost of our redemption. So we're going to look at hope. And that's preparing the mind. It's having new thinking. Hope. Secondly, holiness. Shaping your heart. Shaping your heart. And we'll talk about the relationship between mind and heart. And finally, the high cost of of redemption which is what undergirds both our hope and, listen carefully, our holiness. Holiness. Okay. Verse 13, for those of you that love to study your Bible and put notes in there, you should put next to verse 13 a hinge. This is what scholars and New Testament people and even Old Testament people, they look for these literary pieces within a uh, section of the Bible to see how they connect. And verse 13 is a hinge. Uh, Dr. Edmund Clowney in his commentary, he says this, the imperatives of the Christian living always begin with therefore. Listen, always begin with therefore. So what what Peter is doing, he's, he's said all these things in verses 1 through 12, and then he starts 13 with the word, therefore. He's, he's begging you to look back at what he said in those first, thir- uh, first 12 verses, which we can't go back, but what he's done in the first 12 verses is give you no commands whatsoever other than to consider who you are in Jesus Christ, your identity. Peter is demanding that you look at your identity first before he moves on into telling you what you must do. Listen, folks, if you get it backwards, you're going to live a miserable Christian life. And I would say, join the rest of the religions in the world and just be miserable. And try to earn your way into heaven because that's basically what every religion does. Only Christianity, of all the religions in the world, only Christianity does this. Paul does it. Peter does it. Jesus did it. And all of the Old Testament prophets did it. They went in and they told the people who they were. And then they asked them, what are you doing? Are you out of you? You lost your mind. You're worshiping idols. What's wrong with you? Are you crazy? Even Exodus 20. Who knows what's in Exodus 20? Raise your hand. Don't say it. Just raise your hand. Do you know what's in Exodus 20? Three, four people. Shame on the rest of all of you. See how well guilt works? Shame on the rest of all of you. 
Exodus 20 is the Ten Commandments. Every one of you should know that. Exodus 20, Ten Commandments. But guess what's in Exodus 19? One of the most beautiful statements of God telling His people who they are and what He has done for them before He ever gives them commandment number one. I brought you out on eagle's wings. I sheltered you. I protected you. I fought your enemy, Pharaoh. I broke his back. And I'm bringing you here to this mountain because you are my chosen people. Therefore, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Do you see it? Do you see what God is doing? Always tells us who we are before ever requiring us anything. Anything. Dr. Clowney says, Peter does not begin to exhort Christian pilgrims until, listen to this, I love this phrase, until he has celebrated the wonders of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. Redemption always underlines obedience. Redemption always underlines obedience. Who you are as a Christian, redeemed, blood-bought, born again, born from above. Someone who is chosen, elect, not choice, but broken to pieces, whom God has put together and brought about a new creation. It is that person that he's speaking to when he says, go and do thus and so, whatever it may be. And all these years I've told you, if you take your Bible, I don't have my Bible up here, shame on me, but if I, have a Bi- if I had a Bible and you look at it, they're about this big, right? They're big fat books. And you look in the Bible and you could take all of the commandments, all of the rules and all of the regulations and you can put them in just a few pages. The rest of the Bible is stories about people who wrestled with those commandments who either obeyed them, broke them, or struggled with them. Now, do, look, doesn't that explain our, doesn't that explain your experience? Some of you are obeying them, some of you break them, some of you obey them and break them at the same time. And many of us struggle with them. And that's what the majority of the Bible is about. There's a little bit about what you're to do, and then there's all of this about who we are, strugglers. Pilgrims, lovers of God, and yet at the same time, kind of not lovers of God. Kind of like our kids. They love us, but hey, I don't know about your kids, but... And all of you were children at one time. Didn't you love your parents? How many of you always... Don't you dare lie. How many of you always obey your parents? Always. 100% of the time. Without even a... Not even a thought of disobeying. See, we have some honest children in this church. Of course we don't. But do you love your parents? Of course I love my parents. But eh, then I know better than them. I'm three years old. All right. 
Imperatives always follow. Imperatives are commandments and they always follow what are called indicatives, who we are. They always do. And if you get them backwards, listen very carefully. Who you are, I've said this for 13 years, going on 14 years, who you are determines what you do. Otherwise, you lose the gospel and you lose grace. If what you do determines who you are. You are a Pharisee. Jesus was very direct with the Pharisees. He's, he told the, the, the people, He said, what the Pharisees say you need to, to do because they sit in Moses' seat. In other words, they have the authority to say, but don't do like they do. In other words, He was talking about their heart. The outward was fine. Outside they kept all the rules. In fact, better than you. Better than me. They kept the rules. But Jesus saw below the surface and He saw why they were keeping the rules. To be seen by men. Or in order to put somehow, crazily, they thought that by keeping rules they could put God in their debt. And when suffering comes, folks, when it actually comes to us, and all of you have suffered in one way or another, either you've been persecuted because you're a Christian or you've suffered because we live in a fallen and very messed up world. But somewhere along the line, everybody in this room has suffered. And suffering tends to undermine that idea to where we always ask the question, why is this happening to me? Yes? Why is it happening? Why am I going through this? And we think what's going on subconsciously in almost every human being's mind, well, if I had done this and this and this, this would not have a cause and effect. As if subtly, subtly in our minds, we believe that we are sovereign and God is not. And I beg you to read the first three chapters of your Bible and you'll find out that that's what our parents thought. They thought, you know, I can be like God. If I just eat this fruit, I can know the difference between good and evil, and I'm equipped to actually know the difference and be able to make moral choices. And God had said, don't do that. Stay in this state. Don't move over into this state. You can't handle that. You're not God. You can't be like me in that respect because you will take evil down into your soul and you'll become evil and instead he tries to protect his people he says don't do that instead they go ahead and do it so very quickly let's look at some of these things that he says now he's moving into commands into imperatives and and be be very cognizant of what he's saying because he's not telling you don't do this and don't do this and don't do this. He says do this, do this, do this and one time he says don't do this. So listen carefully. Let's go through it as quickly as we can. Four things he tells them and they're not, there's only one command in these four things. See if you can pick it up. Preparing the mind for action, being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace of God that will be revealed in, at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what he's telling them is in these, in these four statements, in the very first verse, 13, he's saying preparing your mind. He's assuming that you already will do that. Being sober-minded, he's assuming you'll do that too. He's saying now set your hope. There's a command. Set your hope on the grace that will be revealed. Now there's a command. Don't you like that command? 
Doesn't that sound a little different than I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go out with girls that do this? Isn't that better? Set your hope on the grace of God that will be revealed to you in Jesus Christ. The mind, what he's talking about here, folks, is not merely the intellect. In fact, he uses, in Greek, it does not say set your mind. It says gird up your loins. But the translators don't translate it the way it actually is said in Greek because nobody would understand it. In those days, many of you know this, they, they wore long robes. The men wore long robes. And underneath were pantaloons. They were loose-fitting pants. And so these men, when they went out to the field to work or when they were going to move fast or they needed some mobility, they would gather up those skirts, those long rolls. They still do it in much of the world today. Stuff it into their belt or their sash, and that way their legs were free to move. That was preparing yourself for action, whatever that action may be. It could be just going to work. It could be going to, you're going to get in a fight. You don't want to get tangled up in your dress men when you're going to fight, right? So, so, you know, it's girding up your loins, making sure there's nothing loose there that's kind of messing, you know, messing you up. So you gird it up, you pull them up, tuck it in, and you go to work. It's an action. It's preparing your mind for action. He uses this very specific that everybody in that world would have understood. Then he says being sober-minded. He uses another word. I not want this to be a vocabulary lesson, but he uses another word in Greek that means not being intoxicated. Just a simple word, not being intoxicated. Now listen, Presbyterians, this does not mean that you can't drink. This is nothing like that. Thank be to God. It's not about not drinking. It's about not being drunk or out of control. Or in other words, what he's saying is you are to be in control of your mind. You're not to be like most people who just simply react. Do you ever feel like you're just reacting to things? That you're not actually being proactive? You're not thinking ahead what we say, what we do? My goodness, I've been married to Mati V. I don't know how many, how many years is it? Almost 40, right? How in the world did that happen? I don't know. She, and she says, I don't know. If we... I think back on our marriage, I think if I had just taken one second and thought about what I was going to say before I let it blab out of my mouth, you know, we'd have had a great marriage. Of course, Mati V was perfect. You all know that, right? (laughs) That was supposed to be funny. (laughs) Everybody thinks you're perfect. Should I tell them some stories? No? I'll really be in trouble. Okay. I said... So no, of course, you know, think before you speak. Think before you act. How many of us, but instead we just act. We just do things. We react. We're always reacting. And then afterwards, we go, oh my goodness, why did I do that, right? And what Paul is saying is take a moment, think, be sober-minded. Have your mind self-control. Now he's talking about an ongoing action. He's not saying that you just become self-controlled. Today I'm self-controlled. Now I'm self-controlled. For the rest of my life, I'm self-controlled. Good luck with that. No, he's saying it's an ongoing thing. It's something you're going to struggle with. Self-control. You're going to be, you know, there's going to be chocolate chip cookies and you're going to say, you know, how many am I not going to eat? And instead he's saying, think about what you're doing. Even with trivial things, major things. Think about it before you do it. The Proverbs is full of this. Think before you speak. 
Think about what's going on. Be sober-minded. Ongoing action in your life. Set your hope on grace. Listen, folks. Grace cannot be put over against law. Grace and law were never meant to be in conflict. The imperatives or the commands that God gives each and every one of us to do, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to love God with all our heart, uh, to do good, to seek justice, all of those things that He tells us over and over in Scripture are never, 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 I said it three times, never a means by which you try to gain favor with God. They're never that. They are always, always, always the outworking of who you are. And so you're to be sober-minded and think, you know, who am I? Well, I'm this person. And so now the next thing that I'm about to do should comport or be in, in a relationship with that which I am. Why do you think it grieves Holy Spirit when we sin? Why do you think it grieves the Holy Spirit when we sin? How many of you are sinners by nature? By nature, you're sinners. Let's see some hands. That's a trick question, so be careful. How many of you are sinners by nature? Okay, then I want all of you this morning to now become Christians. We're going to pray a prayer so that you can have a new nature. What does the New Testament tell you, a new Christian? What happens to a new Christian when he comes to Jesus Christ? What happens to that person? What happens? They're put put to death. It's not me that lives. But what? What did Paul say? Christ lives in me, the hope of glory. I have a new nature. Behold, all the old things passed away. Behold, the new man has come. And so the New Testament is very clear, Peter is very clear, that that when you become a Christian, the day you become a Christian, a new nature takes the place of the old nature, and the old nature is put to death. Now the old nature is not doesn't go away, but he no longer has power over you. Do you understand that? The old nature does not have power. The Apostle Paul made that clear in Romans chapter 6. He, doesn't, he, he tells us very specifically, the old nature shall not rule over you. Shall not. But what do we struggle with, folks? What is the real struggle? Why do we continue to struggle? And the reality is because we still live in the presence of sin. Sin is still all around us, and it's still in our habitual nature, what Paul called the flesh. It's still in us, because we've spent no matter how many years, I mean, I don't know how old you are, you're probably older than me. I don't know how old you are, but however many years you've spent in your body, you have learned habits and and ways of following patterns of thinking that form a complex that you have constantly got to deconstruct and to fight against. Yes, is that making any sense? Am I connecting it all? You're constantly, but, but if it's not the new nature that is going against that, what is going against it? What is it? And I would like to suggest that it's just you. And if it's just you fighting your old nature, then folks... 
Christianity is going to be horrifically hard. But if it's the new nature, then you can always resort to that and say, No, I am a new creature in Christ. I do not have to do this. He has given me the Holy Spirit so that I can truly resist. And if I fail to resist, He has truly given me power to repent. I can actually turn to Him in faith and trust Him for my forgiveness. Yes? Do you all believe that? Does this church believe that? That whether you are successful resisting or not successful, but turn to Him in in repentance, that He's still pleased with you? Somebody please say yes. Okay, uh, otherwise I'm going home. Marty V and I are going to go to Starbucks. I mean, come on. If that's not the truth of the gospel, folks, if He has not put in you a new nature, and thereby that new nature giving you the power to resist sin, then you need to throw the book of Romans away. The book of Romans tells you you're a new creature. Yes, you wrestle. Paul talks about it in chapter 7. He says, you know, I'm struggling with this, but thank God for chapter 8. There is now therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus who walk according to the Spirit. You see, there's, there is hope at the end of the battle. This is exactly what Peter is talking about. Preparing the mind. Taking that step, saying, I am going to resist sin with all my heart, and when I don't, I'm going to repent robustly. I'm going to be the greatest fighter and the greatest repenter. I'm going to set my hope fully on grace, not merit. Not how well I'm doing, but how well Jesus did for me as me. And that will change your thinking. Something will start to shift. Your Christianity will become less of a burden. You'll start to see the cross in new light. And let me tell you something. You will not become more lazy about your obedience. You will become, for perhaps the first time in your life, truly zealous to obey God's law and do what he says in the later verses we'll look at. Be holy. Be holy. Alright? If you don't get this underpinning into your life, your Christianity will be miserable. And look, I don't want to know right now, but if you're struggling, if you're just saying, you know, Christianity really stinks. I don't like it. It's just too hard. Come see me. Come see one of the elders in the church. Let's talk. Let's try to figure out what is going on inside your heart. I struggled to be a Christian my whole life. I do not. Folks, I can tell you before God, honestly, I don't struggle to be a Christian anymore. I still struggle with sin. But I know where the battle is. The battle is in here. The battle's not out there, the battle's in here. Every generation, every Christian generation and every Jewish generation before that had to live in a world surrounded by pagan idolatry. Every single generation. This is nothing new. Stop wringing your hands and saying, Oh my God, our country's going down the tubes. Your country is not going down the tubes. Your country is not going down the tubes. Your country is not going down the tubes. You have a better country. You have a better country. 
And it's not here. It's not even on this earth. You have a better country. And it's already great. You don't have to make it great. It's great. And that's where your strength and your power and your passions lie so that you can live in this world which is sometimes goes upside down and sideways like it seems to be going now. And this is exactly what Peter is telling us. He's telling us to look with hope, to put our foundations down deep in the soil of God's grace for us, to see ourselves, yes, we have dual citizenship, and yes, I'm telling every one of you, you should go out and vote, 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 be involved in your community, be involved in politics. Uh, I've had some people say some nasty things to me. They think I'm going to vote for Hillary. I'm not going to vote for Hillary nor the other guy. They're horrific, horrifically bad candidates. And so, personally, I'm going to do something different. I won't tell you right now, but I'm going to do something different. I'm not telling you what to do. Vote your conscience. But don't think that that's the problem, because that's always going to be there. But we can overcome. We have citizenship in another land, a good country with a great king. And it's that power that gives us living hope so that we can be excellent citizens in this world and actually be salt and light and live without fear and and live with joy even though things around us do not look good. And if we have to go to our deaths, we go to our deaths screaming with the top of our voices, Jesus Christ is Lord. Yes? Could we do that? If we don't start building that now into our lives and especially into the lives of our children, they're going to face some hard times ahead. Let's do it now. Let's be proactive. Build that into our heart. Why? Because the fourth thing that Peter says, and this is something I love, grace that will be revealed. He's telling us to focus on grace, but also the grace that will be revealed at His second coming. And so what he's saying is, before your eyes, Christians of all people, you do not die and just rot and go into a hole in the ground, and there's no more of you. You will be resurrected. There is hope at the end of the... There's light at the end of the tunnel. And there is glory that is awaiting us. Every one of the apostles said that. And even the Old Testament prophets would plead with their people, trust God and He will bring in the new kingdom. He, every, they all, the whole testimony of the Bible promises us that. And so as Christians, folks, you must have an eternal perspective. You must prepare your mind. You've got to have a mind that's gird up for action. You have to be sober-minded, thinking about what's going on around you. You have to set your hope fully on grace, but finally you have to look ahead to what we call in this church, and other people have said the same thing, an eternal perspective. If you do not keep, listen, if you do not keep an eternal perspective as a Christian, you have nothing to hope for. And if you don't keep an eternal perspective, Dr. Bruce Waltke used to tell us almost every day in seminary, if you don't have an eternal perspective, the Bible overpromises and underperforms. How do you like that shocking statement? 
In other words, if there's not something more than this life only, Walkie was simply uh, echoing the Apostle Paul who said, if we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most what? Miserable. Because life is void of meaning. Until you look to the eternal kingdom, exactly what Paul is, uh, Peter is saying, Peter is talking to people that are suffering real, genuine persecution. Nothing like what the United States, we're not suffering persecution. Stop whining. We live in a land of milk and honey. We still have enormous privileges as Christians in this country. That may change, but right now, today, we still have them. So please, folks, please. Have an eternal perspective. Put your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and the grace that will be revealed to us in Him. And that's where Paul uh, put, put his, his, uh, Peter put his hope and that's where Paul put his hope. And finally, that's where our Lord Jesus Christ put His hope. He said to Pontius Pilate, My kingdom is not of this world. And what he was saying, we seem to think, listen carefully and I'll finish with this. Listen, this will, this will blow your mind. When he said, my kingdom is not of this world, he was not merely referring to Roman kingdom, United States of America down here, my kingdom up there. That's not at all what he was saying. It may have been part of it, but not all. What he was really telling Pilate is, My kingdom is not like your kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. It's not like this world. It's not even similar to this world. My kingdom is a kingdom in which the king himself is the first one to hit the beach. When the the boat opens up and the machine guns are flying, he's the one that runs out into the fire. He's the one that goes out. He's not sitting back behind on his white horse while his army goes in and becomes cannon fodder to the enemy. No, he lays down his life for his people. That king tells his people, you hunker down in the foxholes. You stay in the trenches. I will go. I will go into the valley of the shadow of death. I will go fight Goliath for you. You don't have to be like David. You have to trust David. You have to put your heart and your soul into that David that went in not the valley of the shadow of death, but the valley of death who laid on, died on a cross for you so that you could then get out of the trenches and run with all your might screaming victory in Jesus to go and win the battle that He already won for us. That's Christianity. It is not a king who sits back and commands and says, Go. No, it's a king that says, therefore, because I've done this, foreknown, what does it say? Foreknown before the foundation of the world, before ever anything else. He was predestined. He was elect. He was chosen to die on a cross For you and I, He was predestined, chosen, elect to go into a grave 
in the darkness and absence of God for you and I so that we would never have to live in fear, no matter if Hillary is president, no matter if Trump is president, or if the devil with his horns and his tail is president, which may be the case. We don't have to be afraid. Will you not fear? Will you stand up and have faith in this king who went into the battle for you? so that we could not be afraid. It doesn't mean that things are going to be easy. They may be hard. Trust Him. Will you trust Him? I pray you will. Let's pray. Father, um, thank You. I, I don't know what to say, Lord, to You who went into the battle for me, who died on the cross for me, who went into the, the shame of nakedness and death, exposed for all the world to see so that we could be clothed in beautiful white robes of righteousness. And Father, if that doesn't change our hearts, I don't know what will. If that doesn't change our minds, I don't know what will. Please, I beg you, Father, and everyone here today, that we would reject the fear that our culture is just pouring upon us like a flood, and that we would trust you no matter what comes in the days ahead, that you will help us, save us, and have mercy on us according to your grace. We know that you'll do it, Father, for your Son and for us, who you loved before the foundation of the world. Amen.